You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and for three years now I've been doing this show, and I am super excited. I have finally gotten to the point where I can bring on the one and only Cassie Stevens, icon among us, like the rock star of the elementary art world. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be chatting with you. Oh, I'm I'm so excited. I I got to tell you as an elementary art teacher, I have learned a lot and honestly stolen a lot from you over the years. Like your YouTube channel uh got me through some rough days when I did not have a lesson plan ready to go or I was trying to figure out like how do I do this that and the other thing. I I don't know how you like discovered magic and why no one else knows about it but like the stuff you're doing is amazing you're very kind thank you and I'm you're not stealing it I'm happily sharing it so that's why I put stuff out there for people to share I gain so much from other elementary art teachers so I'm always happy to give back and share out what works for me yeah, and one of the things that works for me, I I did not plan this when I reached out to you, but this episode is going to be dropping on Halloween, and we're talking about a fashion icon, Christian Dior, and um, you know, it's the two of us, two fashion icons ourselves, talking. Right? About <laughs> well, at, at least you actually know how to dress yourself. I'm always in some version of this, like stained hoodie, but. Um, that doesn't really translate to the audio medium. <laughs> five of my students who like listen to this actually got that joke. But today, like I said, we're going to be talking about Christian Dior. Um, I usually reach out to guests and ask, "Who do you like?" Because I I want to find some something they like. I'm going to be honest. I was I've heard of Christian Dior, but like I could not have picked out a Christian Dior look before this. How, why did you pick Dior? Well, I've always loved fashion. I've, um, even in high school, you know, I lived in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, and there wasn't a lot of clothing options other than like what was available at Kmart. And so one way to kind of stretch a dollar because I didn't have a lot of dollars and just to kind of have fun was to go hit the thrift stores. And at the thrift stores, you find at least back in the 
late 80s and 90s, you would find quite a bit of vintage still. And I noticed that one kind of style I was always drawn to was that 1950s kind of look, which is called fit and flare, a fitted bodice or a top. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, sorry about that. And no worries. So I was drawn to like the fitted bodice or a top and then a big flaring kind of skirt. Now, I didn't know what that was called, but that was just something that I was really drawn to and really interested in. Um, so I enjoyed that kind of fashion in high school, but as an adult, I just assumed that I had to wear the adulting kind of uniform, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when I became a teacher, I assumed that I had to dress like a teacher professionally. And, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was the white button down shirt and the khaki pants with a belt. Like there was a whole lot of that, some jean jumpers thrown into the mix and wasn't my favorite thing to wear. I just assumed that I had to wear it. Um, but there were a couple of times I would sneak a little vintage number into the mix and, um, the kids responded and I enjoyed wearing it. And that just kind of led me down a path to kind of learning more about fashion. But it wasn't until we had a big exhibit on Christian Dior here in Nashville with, um, all of his new look exhibition and his fashion. And it, it just blew my mind. I went to that exhibit three times and I just enjoyed it and forced myself to kind of learn how to sew using vintage patterns. So that's kind of what brought me to Christian Dior and just that love for his designs. Oh, that's so interesting. And I have a similar but almost opposite story. So like as a new teacher, I also was concerned about like, I want to dress and look professional. And I would, I wore like shirts and ties every day for the first six months until the kids looked at me and said, what is wrong with you? You're an art teacher. Because like I was ruining every outfit that I had at a time when I like, you know, first year teacher, you don't have the money for new clothes all the time. So like finally they're like, you're an art teacher. Dress like it. Yeah. You know, like get it together. <laughs> like just wear a hoodie and jeans and we're done here because you're gonna get messy. Um so it was the children who forced me to go dress like this shambolic look that I've got and I've been sporting for quite some time. You're rocking it. <laughs> I'm I'm owning it. I, <laughs> I accept it. But Christian Dior, I found interesting because as I started looking at this, it's one of those stories where what is told and what's not told makes a huge difference. Because the first source I went to, it was a very quick overview. It was like, he was born rich, his dad opened a gallery for him, and then he worked at these fashion houses, and, you know, he was an immense success. And I'm just like, huh, I kind of hate you. But then as <laughs> as I'm looking at it, and I, I don't stop at the first source, I look a little bit deeper, you see like, well, his father lost the family business in the Great Depression. He went through the pain of having to lose his gallery business. He went through like struggling through the war effort and finding a way to make do and try to keep his dream of fashion alive at the same time that his sister was captured by the Nazis. I mean, like there's so many different ways you could look at it as he is a child of privilege that just was immensely success started on third base or someone who overcame some real adversity. So 
I'm going to try to give as objective a telling as I can here. Yeah. He was born in um, 1905, January 21st, 1905, in Granville, which is like a seaside town in northern France. Like I said, his family was wealthy growing up. His father owned a successful fertilizer business, which I, I didn't realize like how big of a business this was until I started to read further. Like they expected him to study political science. And like so many artist stories, like the family was not exactly happy with his choice to study the arts. You know, they they wanted him to be a diplomat. They wanted him to to do the respectable stuff. And he was dedicated to his creative pursuits. Apparently, his father did come around because his father his father basically bought him a gallery. Um, he financed this gallery that was reasonably successful. I mean, this was the early, like 1928 is when he opened it. And he was selling works by Brock and Picasso, among others. So doing some good business there. But 1931, we all know, Great Depression, money's hard to come by, family business collapsed, and along with it, the gallery. You know, it was just one of those things where they didn't have the family finances to prop it up anymore. So then he began illustrations. He was working as an illustrator for Figa Figaro Illustra. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't speak French. <laughs> I don't speak French at all. Um, long-time listeners know I, I can't pull it off. But... He's doing that. 1938, he starts working for Robert Piguet. I, I got to stop doing these French things. He's a couture designer. So Dior's an assistant. He works his way up. After France, and actually he f served in the French army. He was a an officer in the military. But then after France surrendered to Germany, Dior goes back to Paris and he's trying to he's trying to keep the fashion industry alive. He's trying to keep his dreams of fashion alive. And so he works for the Lucien Le Long house. Um, it's just another couture fashion house. And during this time, France is occupied by the Germans. So when you think about who has the resources to be buying these things, it's the wives of the the German officers and things like that. So that fashion house is selling. And this is one of those moments where it's like, it's really hard to just put yourself in that mindset. Like what must have been like to, you have to keep your dream alive by selling to these people that are occupying your homeland. And uh, Dior's sister was a part of the French resistance. And she was captured by the Nazis and sent to a concentration camp. And it is one of those few stories where she survived the concentration camp, thankfully. But hats off to her. She had the, the courage of her convictions to go through awful conditions, un unimaginable. But in 1945, he um, actually named his first fragrance Miss Dior as a tribute to her. Or, I'm sorry, 1947, he named it after her. So 
Like I said, he was almost an instant success. After the war, December 1946, he founds his own business, the Christian Dior House. And by 47, like February of 47, so it's like two months after founding founding his house, he puts out a collection. And you already alluded to the new look. Yeah. That was a term that came from Harper's Bazaar describing his collection. I mean, it it just revolutionized the way that people looked at, as you said, the silhouette. It, it was drastically different because, and, and I think the war effort is part of the understanding of this because it was away from the rationing of fabric. Like he's using a lot of fabric to make those, those big poofy, I don't, I don't know how to describe a fashion silhouette. Can you help well, me there, out here? Yeah, there were usually like, um, well, like you're saying during that time they were rationing fabric. So, I mean, even if you think here in the United States during the Great Depression, you know, prior to the war, flour was sold with in printed bags because yeah. fabric was so scarce and they realized that women were using the, the bags that flour came in as clothing. So they even started printing patterns on it because that's just how scarce and tight resources were that they were using flour sacks to make clothing. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then after the war, along comes Dior, and he's using yards and yards and yards of fabric to create things like what we now would call like a poodle skirt. He's essentially the inventor of that look where it was like a big circle skirt or a big gathered skirt. So imagine yards of fabric that is singed at the top to make it kind of come together and then gathering that around the waist. And so that was so controversial. You know, when we look at that 1950s dress, we think it looks very old fashioned. And, mm-hmm. you know, we think of a, a, an era that's totally different from now. But that was super cutting edge that he was using all that fabric. And it was so controversial that people were throwing paint on these models when they were out taking photos of the uh, clothing. They were throwing paint on it and protesting and yelling at him and and the models and whoever was out there working with the models because they felt here we are coming out of this war where we're rationing all this fabric and to them it just looked like an immense amount of luxury and waste. So yeah. you know, what we see as old fashioned was actually just like extremely cutting edge. As with like so many artists that we talk about, you know, I was just doing a lot of reading about Monet. When we see a Monet, we think, oh, such a pretty painting that my grandma had on a calendar <laughs> in her kitchen. You know what I mean? We don't think that this guy's artwork was so controversial that they had to form their own salons. They weren't even allowed into the salon to show their paintings. So it's just very interesting, you know, how history gives us a totally different perspective on what was controversial back in the day. Yeah, it it always cracks me up. When I, whenever I show Monet to my younger students, like second grade or whatever, they're always like, oh, it's so realistic. And I'm like, actually, for the time, it was scandalously bad. Right. It was, it was like it, they were offended by how sloppy it was. And with this, it seems so conservative mm-hmm. looking through today's lens. You know, these these, you know, very polished dresses. And you talk about like using 20 yards of fabric on a skirt or whatever. Like that feels like a lot of fabric. You would think like scandalous is the short skirts. But no, using so much fabric, as you said, that was decadent. That was over the top and and indulgent in a way that people found wasteful. And 
in the context of war-torn Europe, like, Mm -hmm. I can understand why people would say, hey, is this our priority? But his stance was, yes, this is our priority, to bring back some joy Mm -hmm. to that post-war society, to, you know, to get back to what they had enjoyed previously. At least that was his goal from what I understand. Yeah. And what I found interesting about him was that, um, you know, he came to, he reminds me a little bit of Grandma Moses in that he came to fashion, like I want to say in his 30s or 40s, you know, and then he was an apprentice for like you mentioned the two designers. So it really took him a while to really give himself that push to just kind of go for it and to try it. And then when he did, it was this we'll call it a success, but it was a controversial one, you know, at that, but it was just like groundbreaking in that it changed the whole look from that point on, you know, as far as fashion goes, but it's interesting that it took him that long to get up the courage, I guess. And then to get to that point. And then I believe he didn't live much longer after that. If I understand right, I want to say maybe that was, you know, maybe in his forties that he passed away. It was fairly young. It was it was fairly young. He, it, you're right. It took him like 15 years to be an overnight success. But um, but yeah, then he had like maybe ten a 10 year run or so after that. I I don't like to dwell too much on when people died, but yeah, he was like it was it was about 10 years of success um, before I think he died of a heart attack or something like that. But he in that time he did so much. He, you know, he's innovating with these new silhouettes and the ways of working with fabric and just reinventing the way that people are looking at fashion. And I also just like the little, little things that I read that are sort of human things. Like he was a superstitious guy. Like he would consult tarot card readers and he, um, with every collection, he included a coat named Granville after the town where he grew up and his favorite flower, Lily of the Valley, like someone, at least one model in each show had that flower with her. Like it's all these little things that I, I always find interesting because I'm that kind of guy who like when I do like a little when I do a mural or something, I will hide my children's initials in it and stuff like that. You know, I Easter like eggs, little Easter eggs, right? Yeah, I like yeah. that he would do that kind of stuff like that. Just that feels so human to me because when I look at couture fashion it seems so unaccessible to me. Um, and maybe that's just because I dress like garbage, but like I, I, I think it's some, there's something really sort of quaint and sweet about the way that he's remembering and paying tribute to where he was born in every collection. I think that's kind of cool. And then after, after he passed away, as you said, like the brand lived on um, Eve St. Laurent, uh, took over the house for a while. And another innovation of his, which I, I think is kind of interesting and in some ways foreshadows like pop art, he was one of the first people to license his name and his brand on stuff. And and some people thought it was cheapening the couture fashion by like putting his name out there. But, um, you know, that was kind of one of his innovations is getting his name out there on all sorts of stuff and licensing it on accessories and stuff like that, which made it a little bit more accessible, broke down some barriers. I mean, still not accessible to me, but, you know, to others. Me neither, but it's fine. (laughs) 
Um, so now after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the new look and one of those pieces that was so revolutionary. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. I'm looking here at the bar suit from 1947. This is from that first collection that made such an impact that, that like, I always think of like, it's named the new look the way that like architects would talk about the international style. It's just like, forget everything that happened before. These are the rules of the road going forward. So what are we seeing here? What was so revolutionary about it? What do you like about it? What are you noticing? Well, I think one of the things that, like what we mentioned that was so revolutionary is you just see this voluminous skirt, you know, so much fabric. I mean, it looks even heavy on the mannequin. And if you kind of contrast that with what people were wearing at that time, like in the 40s, during the war, prior to the war, which would have been probably recycled fabrics that they were having to use, like we mentioned earlier. But also 1940s fashion would have had more of a straight skirt that Mm -hmm. the reason being because of fabric shortage. So they wouldn't have had like a full skirt like this. So this is really that kind of iconic full skirt that you think of. And then what I also noticed is that this dress, especially like the, the suit jacket, it's got a lot of heavy boning in it. So it really accentuates that hourglass uh, figure that this mannequin has and that, you know, I'm assuming was the desirable look at the time, because as you know, with fashion and with trends, um, popularity and fashion changes, but also like popularity of what is um, considered beauty changes. And it always changes. It's always evolving. And it's almost like he's putting forward here what he thinks is going to be the new look as far as what people appreciate and and beauty goes. So a really narrow waist and then full hips and this giant skirt. 
And it's also interesting that it's like full length all the way down to the wrists. It's buttoned up all the way pretty close to the neckline. So I would say it's almost like you mentioned earlier, as far as like the look of it goes, I would say this is a much more conservative look. It To me, it almost seems like something dated back to maybe the Queen's kings and queens days of old, where it's like a very long dress, very hourglass, almost corseted kind of waist and fabric down to the wrist. So everything is kind of covered. So that's what I'm seeing. And that's what I think about. Yeah. And I, I agree with everything you said, the parts that I understood, I very much agreed with. I do have some questions for you though. Um, so the first thing you talked about, it looks like a lot of boning in there. Can you explain what is boning in, okay. in, is that a, is that a, a like the construction material, how it's applied, like, where are we going there? It's structured. So it is. It's like, um, so an architect, when they're building a building, they're going to use either metal or um, yeah, metal posts to kind of create the boning or the inside structure yeah. of a building or wood right? Usually one of those two things. And then the building is built around that. So boning is very similar and it's almost always done in the bodice. The bodice is like the top, yeah. you know, and then the skirt would be at the bottom. So the bodice at the top, you see, it's really structured. That's mm -hmm. not just the fabric behaving that way on its own. Because if you look at the sleeves, you can see the sleeve fabric looks a lot more loose. Like if you touched it, it would be gentle. But if you touched the torso, it looks like it would be really firm or hard. So that's because of the structure inside or that boning. And boning is usually, it's made of a couple of different kinds of materials. Sometimes it's kind of a wire. Um, sometimes it's what's called a horsehair boning. Different mm -hmm. kinds of materials can be used, but essentially it's that structure inside. If you can imagine in your head what a corset looks like, and yeah. there's usually like these thin strips, I'll call it a fabric, that kind of run vertically on a corset that helps to give it its form. That's what the boning would look like if you had x-ray vision through this jacket. Okay. So, it, you know, to, to use an analogy, it's like the armature for a sculpture. There's some sort of rigid exactly. support, maybe exactly wire or something. Okay. Um, so that's actually like in there. It's not just the way that it's cut, but it's also like, there's some, some more rigid stuff in there. And like you say, my, my reaction to this is very largely the same as yours, that the silhouette, it it almost feels cartoonish in the exaggeration of the proportions and the hourglass figure, as you say, but it it feels conservative. I mean, the this the skirt is longer, the the jacket's buttoned up all the way to the top. It's um you know, the other thing that I like I look at this, I mean, the jacket looks like the kind of fabric like my grandmother would wear. Although I mean, my grandma would have been, you know, fashionable in that day. So maybe that's just all of us holding on to the styles that were popular when we were when we were young. But um, it feels very formal. But then I, I look at this almost like a, a mullet of a suit because it feels like it's business on top, and then. It gets looser and more party on the bottom. Mm. Is that is that just me because of because of the volume and because there's also that contrast with like the black and white, which I feel like fits in with the the modern aesthetic. 
of this like high contrast. Oh, I guess it's not pure white. It's more of like a cream color, mm-hmm. but it's still that extreme high contrast between the super light top and then the the dark skirt and the volume on the bottom. Well, a lot of the photos of his models wearing these um, these outfits, it's a lot of the models grabbing the bottoms of the skirt and kind of swinging them out or doing a twirl and kind of moving around. So it really, it almost like it doesn't do this um, outfit justice just to see it hanging like this, because I feel like it was meant to move. Mm -hmm. And so the top part is really structured. And so it's contrasted even more when you see the skirt just kind of billowing and flaring out. There was a lot of twirling and a lot of just kind of holding the fabric up and letting it kind of fall. And Mm -hmm. it also, I think you can even tell, it's hard to see because the skirt is so dark, but you can see that that fabric is just lighter and it's meant to move, whereas the jacket is very, very stiff. So it's definitely a contrast. And so maybe he wanted to exaggerate that contrast further still by making them kind of opposite kind of colors, you know, the cream versus the black. I also yeah. think that, um, that maybe that this outfit, because it does kind of call back to, like we were saying, the Kings and Queens of days of, you know, yeah. days gone by that maybe it was like a celebration of femininity and the female figure, the female form. Because if you think about what females were doing at that time in history, a lot of their husbands were away at war. So a lot of them were having to go into the factories and work for probably the first time ever. And, you know, there's that iconic Rosie the Riveter where she's Mm -hmm. rolling up her sleeves and taking on a role that she's never done before. And so maybe after the war, and I'm just speculating here, there was a sense that, you know, now we can allow females to embrace their feminine side once more. And perhaps this was a celebration of that. That's just a guess um, based on how we'll say, I don't want to say outdated, but how like a call to older times this dress looks. Yeah. Well, I think that makes I think that does make some sense. I think it is intended to be a tonal shift. I think of it in the way that you talked about the movement was exaggerated in all of the photos of the models, you know, twirling the dress and stuff. Like, I feel like it is meant to be joyous. And I think it does make sense that the super exaggerated hourglass, like, you know, padding on the hips and really narrow at the waist and letting this flow. Like, I I feel like the difference between that look and what had been happening previously, it does feel like it's intended to shift the tone. And I don't, I don't even know how to think about that. Like, I think that it is bringing back some of the softness and femininity and the joy of, you know, that aspect of life too. But I, I think there's something interesting and progressive about it in the way that it's not just lighthearted. There is structure. There is still like a strength to it because of the, because of the high contrast, because of now I'm going to use the terms, the boning that's happening in there that makes it so rigid in the silhouette. Like, because there is that structure that's defined, it feels simultaneously strong and assertive and at the same time 
soft and light and airy. And I, I think that's what was his magic. Cause I wouldn't be able to figure out how to do that. Oh no. You know, it's reminding me now that you're saying that about strength, it's reminding me a lot of, um, uh, a, so, a suit of arms, like armor that a knight mm. would wear because yeah. it is so, I mean, it looks like you could knock on it and it would make like a, a knock on a door <laughs> kind of sound. It looks very, very solid, which, you know, that could be a way of him showing the strength that women had to have during that time in history, but yet maybe also celebrating their femininity. Just yeah, a thought. I don't know. I, I, I would agree. I mean, it's multifaceted, which... As we all know, humans are. And I think people respond when they see that reflected in works of art. So now to wrap it up, I always like to ask, um, I always like to wrap this up in the most uncomfortable way possible. So I'm wrapping it up just a three-point rating scale. Where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loop. British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, for me, this is definitely the Louvre. I mean, Dior is, I just, I think he is, his designs are magical. I find this to be beautiful. I think it was like a, a definite page in history that really changed the course of fashion, but it also was like this new time when the war had ended and it was almost like a celebration of so many things, even though it was very decadent at that time. In that respect, it probably was a celebration. So I say the Louvre for sure. And he's French, so he has to go in the Louvre. So I'm sure there's (laughs) probably some Dior in the Louvre. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, this does feel like it's a pretty significant piece just in the way that people talked about it as the new look like it is the end all be all of fashion for that day that tells us a lot about the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times like it tells us what people were into and i think that is definitely true even though i don't think i could pull it off <laughs> i think um i think it's definitely something that I see this type of silhouette and I see like looking back at photographs from history, like I see how this was a departure from what the fashion trends had been before that. And you see elements of this going through in all sorts of lines going forward. Like this high contrast feels very mod to me, Mm. you know, like I see ripples of this through decades of, of fashion, um, that, I think is worth noting and understanding and appreciating. But also worth appreciating is the fact that you took the time to kill an afternoon talking to me of all people. So thank you once again, the Cassie Stevens, the iconic um, influencer all over Instagram and your YouTube channel has so many wonderful resources I cannot state enough. Like I've gotten so many wonderful lessons from you. You, how many books are you up to now? <laughs> I'm. I've written three. I'm working on. I'm. I'm really good at starting stuff. I'm not great at finishing. So I've written three, and I'm working on two right now. So okay. one of them. One of them will get done sooner or later. Let's just hope. 
but I now feel a connection with you as somebody who has so many things that are 90% of the way finished. Yeah. So <laughs> the ending finishing something is the hardest part. Starting is the the best part, you know? That's, <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. That's probably why we all start stuff and have a hard time finishing. Oh, but thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I am going to leave links in the show notes for everyone who wants to learn more about pretty much everything. I don't know how you do it, but I appreciate that you do. Thank thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.